These are the chronicles of the journey we take together. The journey of Steamheart, and one we invite you to take with us through Through the the wind wind door. And welcome back to another episode of Through the Windor, where we are going to cover the final three chapters of Steamheart. This is going to be a fun one. Yes. There's a lot that we could get into as part of a lead-in, but we've got a big list ahead of us. We've got a heavy list ahead of us. And I think we can do proper reflection the next time we record when we think about how far we've come. Let's get right into it. Greg, something occurs to me. Is this going to be our... We're going to get into it. Why are you interrupting me? (laughs) Because that's what I do. Okay. (laughs) Okay. My question is, will this end up being our Christmas special this year? Because uh, we probably could have picked it better. (laughs) Everywhere the atom bombs are dropping. It's the end of all humanity. No more time for last-minute shopping. It's time to face your final destiny. It's Christmas at Ground Zero. There's panic in the crowd. We can dodge debris while we trim the tree underneath a mushroom cloud. As it turns out, while this episode is not likely to come out on Christmas, as of right now it's Wednesday and I'm only just starting to seriously edit, by the time Toby has reviewed it, it will probably come out soon after. If I time it just right, I might even be able to release it on my birthday. Well, anyway, back to the work at hand. It is easier to read about Chapter 40 than it is to listen to it, the one called Standoff. It is far more dramatic, of course, to hear it play out, especially when James takes us through the moment-by-moment of his brain, clearly influenced by the 2009 Sherlock Holmes movie. But given the conflict of wills, the loss, the note that it ends on, as I write this outline, I'm saving the re-listen for another time, as I know that final narration by Lareda as Harry will emotionally destroy me. This is what I wrote at the time. Obviously, one of the upcoming questions is going to get into the fact that I have re-listened to it by now, and I will expound on my feelings as you will expound on your feelings. But, uh, Toby, how do you feel about where we are now in the story? All right, so this is the ending of a book that is this long winding road and endings are always hard alex has often said that he second guesses himself on certain aspects of the writing process but one thing he is relatively confident on is that he knows how to do his endings and even with that a story like steamheart 
finding the right ending for that is difficult because it's like, what is the point that you conclude all of this road trip odyssey of this cast of characters? How do you bring that to a close? Especially because this is the first big crossover event of New Century and you know that this is going to set a tone, set a direction for stories to come later. And the answer that Alex comes to is to give us an ending that hurts everyone and leaves none satisfied. Now, let me be clear. I am not suggesting that this is an unsatisfying ending for the audience. I simply mean that it is an outcome that, in the story, saves many but hurts all. Without jumping ahead to specific talking points that we've got planned for the rest of the session, I'll summarise it for now as being a messy conflict resolution. Abigail did her best, but she could not get people to put their guns down. Or at least, not right away. It was a combination of the mind and the heart between James's discovery and his first application of his true abilities, and Abigail telling everyone after the collateral damage had been dealt that they were done, with a capital D, Both of those together felt like they accomplished this process, this final end point of this conflict. And Harry reaching out to James to provide that key insight and be the spark of his realisation, which is fitting because it's much in the same way as how the portal opening requires an ignition through the release of energy. Mm. So just as this wind door opens with the guns firing off, the chain of thoughts and considerations that James goes through in order to figure it out is sparked by, wow, sparks. (laughs) I I just, I just put that together. Annie's nickname is so fitting. I know writers that use subtext and they're all cowards. You know, I feel like we're going to use that line a lot this session. (laughs) Harry is almost framed as the bridge between the two. She's someone who has formed a very close relationship with Abigail, and she is the one who reaches out to Mm. James, and is the one who provides the key detail that makes everything fall in place. So it's the mind, it's the heart, and it's the connective tissue between them. Just as the Steamheart expedition was a journey of space, the very literal text of the story was that this was an experiential journey for all of Team Steam, where they would ideally become better versions of themselves. James and Abigail are still on theirs, and it will continue in Uncivil Outlaw, just as Harry's will continue in Stone Spring Maidens. But there's something profound in what Toby says here. James and Abby, the representation of mind and heart, are still separated by a wide gulf. Harry is, meanwhile, the representation of someone that has been making leaps and bounds in integrating her logical self and her emotional self through the gifts given her by not just James and Abby, but all members of the group. The gentle kindness and support of Jeremy, the inspirational elemental fire of Frau, the gruff, cynical wisdom of Raven, the friendship and outsider experience of Miguel. This is part of why her maiming hits us so hard. 
a poor reward for being the one that ultimately saves the day. One of Steamheart's primary messages is that unity through a diverse group of voices makes us all stronger. Harry is living proof of this. If we make an effort to nurture and support everyone, regardless of race, belief, gender, or how their brain works, doing so will save us. Not just physically, but also our souls. It gives us a triumph that is born out of the characters' journeys and their development up to this point, but the cost and the damage which spilled over makes it not quite a Pyrrhic victory where a victory was won at total like sacrifice of the self, but certainly one that nobody feels wholly satisfied with. All the characters and the audience can do is take stock of what they were able to salvage and set themselves down to finally rest and recharge. But in the cases of characters like Harry and Butler, it unfortunately doesn't feel like the upcoming respite will offer a chance to heal, only for the damage to no longer get any worse, for a time at least. There is a short story that I recall. It's Star Trek tie-in fiction. It was written for an anthology of Star Trek The Next Generation stories called The Sky's the Limit, a reference to the final episode of that series, by a favorite author of mine, Keith R.A. DeCandido. I won't get into too many details, as it would require too much backstory to those unfamiliar with the show. The story itself is called Four Lights, and to those that know, that likely already says a lot regarding what the story is about. The relevant detail is that the beginning and end of the story is framed by Captain Picard saying the words, This does not feel like victory. Those lines could be taken multiple ways. Perhaps it's hard to see that ultimately good was done or achieved due to what it cost to get there. But it can also mean that sometimes doing the right thing doesn't feel satisfying. It takes time for things to settle. Wounds take time to heal. And on the flip side, sometimes doing the satisfying thing could only cause more harm down the road. The continued survival of Rose McLullen as of Story's End is an example of this, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I brought up Dragon Age 2 recently in relation to something else. Alex has gone on the record as saying that that is one of his favorite um, Bioware games. There is definitely a, a thematic and emotional resonance here in terms of people doing their best to make choices to shape what comes forward, but none of it completely saves the day. Hmm. It makes me think of, because our preamble conversation uh, before this recording session was about Doctor Who. I don't think we've had a jar for Doctor Who references before. Given recent events where it's been more prominent, we should make one. Put another jelly baby in the TARDIS. One episode comes to mind. I think it's Voyage of the Damned, and it's uh, the one where there's a space Titanic, because mm. of course there's a space Titanic, <laughs> and... It's a David Tennant uh, Christmas special, and mm. 
it resolves in pretty much 99% of the passengers dying and the doctor ultimately only able to save a handful of people. And you start the episode off with a cast of characters and by the end of it, someone who is the one who would have been played by Billy Zane in the actual Titanic film is one of the last survivors. And he like thanks the doctor, but mentions that because of various business dealings beforehand, this whole thing has actually made him very rich. And he goes off to take stock of his new earnings. And this one character who also survived uh, says that he's not the sort of person that you would have chosen if you could to be one of the survivors. But the thing is that if you could choose rather, that would be worse. Like mm. That's no choice at all. Like It was an ending that I'm probably sort of messily articulating here, but it always stuck with me because it was this subversion of a lot of the ideas that these stories will often give you neat resolutions where the people who are bad are the ones who end up being the casualties and the people who are good are the ones who survive through karma or what have you. And stories like this actually sometimes show characters who you don't want to make it through. Rose, at the end of this, makes it through. She certainly feels heartbroken and suffers her own loss, but she's not one of the people we would choose. But ultimately, this is an ending where it's not about choosing. You just want to minimise the hurt, minimise the pain. I think it was Alex that at one point paraphrased The Princess Bride, where he's like, nobody kills Rose. Rose McClellan lives. <laughs> so, yeah. This was not in our original plan, Talking Points. Of course we don't want any character, any villain, like as bad as Rose to return. But do we think that she is a character that will or should return for future narratives? Or do we think that this was enough, that this was exactly the extent that, like, not even just our own personal preference, because obviously we hope that on the way to wherever she was heading, rocks fell and she died. But here, you know, we're talking about, like, just the greater story coming together. What's your thoughts? At one point, Alex was talking about planning an endpoint for all of his characters. I don't remember if it was specifically just all of the villains, like what eventually happens with them. Maybe it was for all of the characters that have a talking point, you know, in a, in a very like end of an eighties movie where like flash on an image of this particular <laughs> character and have the text scroll across the screen. And I was proposing just like ignominious ends for a lot of the characters that we have grown to just like <clears throat> mayor buck. Um, but honestly, Unless there's some useful story that can be told with the McLellans that will work as a part of the greater whole, I am hoping that Rose McLellan gets an ignominious end. Mm. That she dies off screen unhappy. I, I, I want her to... This isn't kind of me, but like considering what she has done, I want her to die regretting where her actions have led her. Yes. And here's the thing. I would argue that for all intents and narrative purposes, 
we have already seen that mm. because the great Rose McClellan experiment, the plan, the machine that she set up, failed. Her closed-off community where all this terrible stuff was going on is no longer functioning as she designed it. Everything that she built up is gone, and there's no better symbolic representation of that than like all of this being, she set all of this up so that people could make babies, make more children. And the last thing we see mention of her is her cradling her dead son. It To me, that's the symbolically perfect way of ending is she has seen the destruction of everything that she built. And mm. honestly, I've that vindictive side of me prefers that than if it was she who took the bullet and then a violent son more ready to avenge the departed mother. I don't remember where I first heard it. I don't know if it was an idea that was born fully in my own head, but Mm. killing someone is not the worst thing you can do to them because death is an end to pain. (laughs) And you're absolutely right that Rose, even alive, will continue to suffer Mm. because of what happened. When you get right down to it, I don't really want anyone to suffer. I'm Steve Rogers. I don't want to kill Nazis. I just don't like bullies. But what I do want is for bad people, the worst people, to have to live with knowing they were wrong. Or at the very least, to have everyone else see that they were I want them to keep existing in a world where they are unhappy because they espouse toxic beliefs that no one else has time for. Like Saruman in the Shire, except she no longer has the power to harm. There's a character in World War Z, book not movie, that was in a position of power in government that made a lot of stupid decisions that did harm, who now ekes out a subsistence living built off his own labor. And when interviewed, he still tries to justify the bad choices he helped make. That's how I see Rose McClellan coming back. A footnote in the Cartographer's World Book. An object lesson for future generations. I don't think that I actually have anything to add to that, because we have frankly spoken more than we ever needed to about Rose. (laughs) Yeah, she wasn't on the list. Let's continue to not talk about her. Ah. And but, for fictional characters, that is the only death that matters. Ooh, well played, sir. Well played. Okay. But with our opening, this leads me to a couple of big questions. Mm-hmm. You've done this already now. I did this just prior to our recording. After re-listening to chapter 40 with your analytical brain turned off, I asked you to ponder... Impossible. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. How does this chapter make you feel? And can you compare it to how it made you feel originally back in 2019 when you first heard it? I mean, what do you want from me? It makes me feel devastated, Greg. Thank you for asking. (laughs) Uh, It's one of those nothing is going to be the same again, is it, moments in an ongoing series. It's the culmination of that promise all the way at the beginning of Steamheart that all of us would gain something and all of us would lose something. Yeah, no, you bringing those words back and be like, you're not just talking about the characters in the story, are you? 
You're talking about yes. the audience. <laughs> because for all intents and purposes, in so many stories, the audience are the protagonists, and they are also set no. apart from them. It's, well... I, I wouldn't say that they're the protagonist, because the protagonist is the person that keeps the action moving. So unless you're talking about in a very symbolic sense, where the I, story I only progresses as long as the audience keeps watching, no. reading... No, 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 like it's it's not necessarily that I'm saying like oh the audience is the protagonist all uh, no, no, no I am saying that what we see the protagonist go through the journey that the protagonist goes through is almost synchronistic with mm. the pro the journey that the audience goes through they share much the same so if the protagonist whose journey we are participating in gain something and lose something, then through just the sheer process of empathizing with them, we feel that gain. We feel that loss. That is kind of more what I was getting at. That's some real uh, never-ending story vibes there. Like Bastion going through what Atreyu goes through and mm. us seeing Bastion go through it and therefore experiencing it as well. What, what you're getting at about the idea of the audience is both apart from the story and also characters in that story, the people who are witnessing, much like Uatu the Watcher. Mm. Yeah, I, I get you. Forgive me if this is a little sort of navel-gazing meta-analysis. I've been replaying Alan Wake with Sarah recently, Ooh. so a little, okay. a little bit of that is coming back to me. <laughs> I, I tried playing the original Alan Wake and I think I came up against a fight that I was too difficult, so I never managed to finish it. And, I, and then when I got set up at the new place with my new computer, I was like, I'm going to give this another try. And unfortunately, some of the really gummy graphics of the original were starting to get in the way. So I think if I play Alan Wake, I'm going to wait for a sale and get the remastered version and play that yeah. up. Yeah, that, that's what I picked up. And uh, the environments look uh, very good. I think the character models still look a little of their time. But based it... on comparison, I still th I think that the remastered does look better than, oh, the, yeah. <laughs> than the ghoulish. Yeah, like, uh, on a strictly comparison basis, it absolutely does. But I think it also kind of helps the Twin Peaks-esque vibe of it, where some things uh, look quite mm. good and some things look a little bit off. We were playing through the beginning last night and Sarah chuckled at just the sort of line read of when Alan looks into the water and sees his wife in there and he just goes, oh no! Like, <laughs> just there's something about the delivery of that that made mm -hmm. her chuckle and me as well. Also, Toby, you should never apologize for being too navel-gazy. That's a part of our brand, if only because I live for this sort of meta-analysis. Same as getting off on weird tangents. Anyway, tangents. Yes, back into <laughs> the question. Yes. We were talking about uh, how it made us feel, and mm -hmm. uh, the characters all gain something, the characters all lose something, and yes, we experienced that as well. Because, well, Annie was the only permanent casualty of the team, this whole finale is compelling evidence for the argument that there are so many more heartbreaking things to put a character through than just killing them off. You know, you were alluding to this earlier. Yeah. And it's a finale that goes against your expectations of where this big Avengers-style crossover event for this series is likely to go. Because we're not 
reveling in our victories and friendships forged in fire as we all go for shawarma. It's messy and compromised and one that makes the initial patriotic ritz and glamour of the ball in the first act of the that was celebrating the Steamheart expedition where it was conceived as that and marketed as that it kind of takes that and runs it through the mud it makes it come apart when it's confronted with the actual reality of Mm. trying that experiment because it's not just the Rose McClellan experiment that falls apart by the end of this. It's the Steamheart experiment, not the machine Steamheart, though. That literally happens as well. It's the version of the Steamheart expedition as conceived by truth. Mm. So by the end of this, the great effort of every member of the Arlington family has become undone by America. I don't often quote Hemingway Mm -hmm. for many reasons, but I did read a little bit of Hemingway and what comes to mind are the final words of uh, The Sun Also Rises, where this woman says to the main character, we would have had such fun. And his response is, yes, isn't it pretty to think so? Mm. It doesn't dismantle the group beyond repair but they are in pieces and Mm. this is me speaking from what it felt like at the time and on this reread me putting myself into the view of someone reading these without foreknowledge so I am not trying to give anything away this is just I think the reading that most people would arrive to when Mm -hmm. presented with these uh, story beats you get the sense that the next few books will spend time simultaneously picking up those pieces and repairing them while also feeling and playing out the further damage that will ripple out from the cracks that formed in this pivotal finale. It's an ending that's much more in line with The Fellowship of the Ring than it is with the first Avengers film, where Gimli resigns that the Fellowship has failed at a point when it feels very difficult to refute that. It is only the will and determination that Aragorn, Gimli and Legolas find in each other's company that they are able to hold fast and keep going. And all we can hope for with this ending, at least how I felt at the time, is that the crew of a broken steam heart will be able to do the same. So I'm not going to refute anything of what you just said, although I will say that it feels like what you're answering here is how the end of Steamheart in general makes you feel, rather than this specific chapter. It's sort of hard to separate the two, really, because the next couple of chapters are Mm. the fallout of this chapter. So, yeah. yeah. Well, let me get into some of my own thoughts. Having freshly listened to chapter 40 in order to... feel my emotions and think thoughts about them afterwards, this is what I came to. I don't remember how I felt or if I had to take a break in between listening to this chapter and the next back in 2019. But as we have been going through Steamheart, I never did a full re-listen to any of it. I 
re-listen to parts and places in order to be able to draw on the specific strengths of the audio drama in places to experience and think about the music and the way in which the medium makes a difference to how you're taking in the story. And throughout most of part four, but also very specifically this chapter, I feel like on some level I was dreading this more than the chapter where Annie dies, which is why it took me so long to to actually take the plunge back in. I feel like I alluded to this months ago, but when Steamheart ramps up, it ramps up hard, almost like nails in a coffin, making it hard to breathe. Bam. Seth attacks and Rao dies. Bam. Annie and Abby fight. Bam. Abby fights for her life. Bam. Standoff in the dining room. Bam. The final fight at the cabin. Bam. The team is captured and Steamheart is destroyed. Bam. Butler kills Adam. And then Rao comes back and you think maybe it will be okay. And it isn't. The reprieve comes at the final second of the eleventh hour as we stand at Hope's graveside. And yet, fate still gets one last shot in at the end. I was having an emotional reaction without experiencing it that I feel is informed by what I experienced four years ago. What you're describing sounds almost as if it is, like, it was so effective at putting you into that traumatic moment that the characters experienced that you were experiencing difficulty in revisiting a traumatic experience like yeah yeah that i think probably is the best thing to speak to is so thanks alex (laughs) (laughs) i i think i mentioned this at some point i don't remember if it was in private or on the public feed at the discord but like i don't know what it says about me that i really like the way alex's writing hurts me Mm. Speaking more about the experience of re-listening to it, first of all, the music is so goddamn effective. Both the Mm. lead-in to the conflict and then the music that plays and builds as James is having his internal moment and the culmination of that. as we trail off to immediately after the wind door opens and then finally to Harry's experience. Hearing the audio effect of how we experience um, uh, Harry's thought process, how there's overlapping reading of the words It's none of it is easy. It is so dramatic. And for a moment, when you hear the final culmination of James opening the wind door for the first time, 
you want to believe that he saved the day and then you find out that he has not completely mm. he salvaged the day mm -hmm. and then there like the fact that Harry has been wounded is bad enough but when we find out what James is going to have to do to save her life. We're, we're reminded that as great a doctor as James Penrose is, he's still working with the tools of the time. And I've seen enough period films to experience viscerally, even at a remove, what it looks like, sounds like, feels like in my own bones, the experience of having limbs sawed off, even if it's to save a person's life. There is a moment that comes to mind from Deadwood, which I will not be playing here because it's too triggering, especially for me. Well, we don't even see what happens, but we can see Doc Cochran reliving the trauma of young Civil War soldiers having lost their limbs and knowing that in some cases he himself had to perform the surgery to try and save their lives. But it's still trauma. And... Hearing the pain in his voice as he re-experiences their anguished cries. That's what came to mind for me. Even though Alex does his best in the audio drama to spare us from the devastation of this moment. And... Yeah. The best expression of, I think, everything that you are getting at and describing is when he says, I try my best to put it from my mind who I am doing this to. Mm. Mm. Not like it could ever be easy, but... It's the fact that he is saying, like, I am doing this to Harry. I, mm -hmm. It is not like I am... It is not I am doing this for. It is mm. that... It can't be expressed. It, that is the point of the moment, is that it is saying that this is an indescribable and unthinkable moment, which means that in order to even make it happen, James, a character who is always having to be in the moment and always experiencing every detail as it comes and processing how to use that intel and move on to the next moment, he has to switch that part of him off. He has to shut down. The fact that we don't hear it is almost because he has to go on autopilot. He has to do almost what Harry does when she is confronted with it and go inside himself in order to 
just function. And that is the tragedy of James Penrose. And we'll talk a lot more about that in future stories, is that mm-hmm. he is so very good at cutting himself off from his emotions. He has had a lot of practice. We need to talk about James. <laughs> there are many people that we have to talk about and will talk about. And mm-hmm. honestly, we were mentioning this a little bit at the beginning in some of the stuff that may or may not make it into outtakes. We know, because Alex has said it, but we've also experienced it, that all of New Century is this hodgepodge conglomeration of all these different pieces of media, mostly movies, that he has recombined into this story of his own. That means that when we're in the middle of experiencing New Century, we're picking out individual pieces that remind us of those other pieces of media, particularly since you and I spend so much time talking about it on recording. But we've been doing this long enough that every time we end up talking about some other piece of media, our minds have gotten to the point where we start comparing those pieces of media to New Century. Mm, it's happened a lot. I compared Chicken Run to The Princess Thieves. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yes, exactly. That is so weird when... It's so weird, but I stand when, by it. <laughs> yeah. When New Century becomes the context to describe pieces of media that one of us has experienced, well, but the other has not. It kind of makes sense, considering, like, I was saying that to you. Like, I'm not going to, like, say to someone, I don't know, it's like, you know, ah, Chicken Run is like right. the princess thieves and they just insert Gamora like I don't know what that is like <laughs> I I use it for you shared lexicon yes you're you're making mm-hmm. reference to something we both know very well in order mm-hmm. to explain something that the other doesn't know very well like through the window really is kind of us just building and sharing our own lexicon like that's really yeah. what it is yeah Darmok. Darmok. Rai and Jiri at Lunga. Shaka. When the walls fell. Zina at Anzo. Zina and Bakar. Darmok at Tanagra. Shaka. Mirab, his sails unfurled. Darmok. Mirab. Tamok. The river. Tamok. Regardless of how many other people listen to us, it's of enormous value to us. Entirely. Okay, second question. Mm-hmm. I have some thoughts on this that I had prior to asking you this question, and you've laid out your own response to this, which you're going to get into. Yeah. But the question I asked you was, Abigail claims that the opening of the wind door is what caused Green Hollow to lay down arms. How do you feel about that assertion, and what do you think was behind that? Yes, the text itself goes on to say that she asserts familial loss of life might have partly been behind it, but having re-experienced it, having reread it, it's not clear to me that anyone was thinking clearly in that moment, particularly in their state of defending their home, that, that righteous indignation that Buford and Rose give voice to so Mm. what is your response to that question 
See, I think I'm with James in his narration of the scene because I don't think it can be ascribed to any one thing that brought that battle to an end just as it was starting. The damage they sustained in that first volley would have dealt a critical wound to any resolve that remained and even killed some of Green Hollow's more dedicated and violent zealots like Rose's son who became the voice, like the literal voice of the militaristic element of the settlement. So his death, it is symbolic of that aspect dying Mm. down. But as we hear in the following chapter, that resilience didn't dissipate entirely. There were individuals who pushed back, who resisted the RSA to their last breath, and there were some who chose to take their chances fleeing into an unfamiliar world rather than accept a life under them. You are never going to realistically get an outcome to a conflict where all members on a single side will be unified. The tide may shift, but the individual pebbles still follow the path that they were on and make their resultant ripples. As such, there's really only so much you can do to say that this element or that element was the reason why the men, women and children laid down their arms, because each of them will have had their own reasons for doing so, or not, as the case may be. Mm. However, I do think that the wind door played a key role in allowing this outcome the opportunity to come into being, even if a number of other factors came into it. It was an interruption. It was something so huge and unprecedented that it can't help but seize the attention of the entire battlefield. It's an all-eyes-on-me moment, to be sure. And that moment is all it takes for the chaotic path that was about to commence to be disrupted, giving both sides the chance to realise what had already been lost in just the opening moments of this conflict. Without that disruption, both sides would have just continued to fight and give in to their survival instincts until the battle was done, never having the chance to actually look around them and see what had actually been lost, which most likely would have led to Green Hollow's complete annihilation. So this is going to be clumsy and unfinished because I haven't had a chance to voice this to anyone before now, and I am not an expert on this for many reasons. We don't talk a lot about the significance of religion in New Century, And by that, I mean the Judeo-Christian religion, as opposed to stuff that is world-building for other places in the Ten Worlds. Because Mm -hmm. Alex tends to spend very little time on it himself. He does have characters that are, in theory, religious zealots speak their minds throughout. And we even have characters on, ironically, the side of the angels. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a loaded comment, but I won't get into why. But specifically like Tabitha Chorley or Annie in her flashback scene praying to God for deliverance. Or even Catherine Holloway, who hasn't talked much about her beliefs in text, but Maya Cerise has gone on the record on how the Christian religion plays into her portrayal of Catherine. It's very easy, however, to imagine people on both sides, both the RSA soldiers and the members of Green Hollow, with everything else that's been going on over the last 10 years, for them to feel 
like this is the end times. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. I don't have a good sense of when the idea of the rapture came about. Might not even necessarily have been called that. Mm -hmm. Probably more accurate to say the Book of Revelations. The Book of Revelations would have existed at this point. Sure. And the concept of the rapture and, mm -hmm. like, you know, the only sinners left behind idea. Yeah, exactly. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming? Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. With all of the other wind doors, people can see a wind door exists because of the ripple, the disruption of it in the air, but they also kind of have to be paying attention to it. Maybe they hear the literal rush of wind through it. But the thing is, is that in all previous instances, you could not see what was on the other side. Here, hmm. what James creates is big enough that they can see the field mm. on the other side mm. that seems peaceful and beautiful, potentially akin to, say, uh, a specific moment in Moon Knight or an important dramatic moment in The Last Battle mm -hmm. or, say, Valhalla. And that's not even getting into the vaguely described city unlike any humans have ever built. The idea that what they are seeing is a door to heaven opening up it, in front of them. It's very much that kind of imagery that you see at the beginning of Gladiator, uh, mm. which, you know, is itself tying into all of it. It's drawing on the same pool of symbolism and imagery. So, yeah, it is a imagery of peace that comes out of war or it is the thing that happens through like on the other side of a violent life and or something like that i hadn't really put this together until you were describing like how windows had been positioned and experienced in the narrative up to this point but this probably means that james makes the biggest window that we have seen in the series up to this point. I definitely think that his experience contributes to the moment. Like, he is desperately trying to find a way out, but this is the first time that he's done it. Yeah, he's, um, he's unrefined in yeah. this practice, yeah. But it's, but it's also separate from... When it happened with Charlotte, it was literally uncontrolled. It was an accident. It was a wounding yeah. of one could say the space-time continuum so the fact that it just like it happened in various places where there was that discharge of energy that is the catalyst 
And I, I'd be actually be very curious to find out how it occurred in certain other places where there was a significant discharge of energy, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, but like between all of the guns going off, coupled with the fact that James opened the wind door with intent. Yes. And that means that he may not necessarily have known what would be on the other side, but considering that he didn't actually know where he was opening it to, it could be that intent followed what he keyed into. He wanted to save everybody, and that may have affected right. where he opened a wind door to. Oh. Oh, yeah. There's, I'm trying to think of some... like I've seen it in some series where it's like someone teleports to somewhere where they think of something, and it just, because they were thinking of that, they teleported to a very unusual place. And this kind of feels like James was willing for there to be somewhere abandoned and somewhere peaceful. Because, mm. like, you and I have a much better idea of what this world is. And, you know, if James had bungled this, then that would have complicated developments later that's all i'm going to say yeah imagine if he opened a wind door on a populated area yes which <laughs> you know like if he had done this in say you know using stuff that we're familiar with up to this point durga tribe like <laughs> oh, God. suddenly you've got a bunch of pissed off tigers on your hand you know mm -hmm. so uh that's yeah. gonna be something we talk about later on in the recording but <laughs> i feel like not just the opening of the wind door, but where it opened to, played into everyone's response to it. It was an evocative image, and oh. that's why it's a it's a disruptive moment. And mm -hmm. in a later book, when someone is actually recalling this, it's this character who is not a spiritual person who describes mm -hmm. the moment as a miracle. And there was other conversation there that I had to cut out because spoilers. Moving swiftly along. When we begin chapter 41, we come back to the voice of Raven. It feels appropriate in how his voice was a major component to the end of Arlington. And it's here that I, I felt the need to do a little bookkeeping, as we have long known that the epilogue of Arlington and the epilogue of Steamheart cross over a bit on our timeline. The article that Raven wrote for the Washington Post was dated October 26th, 1883. The, the one where uh, six months after the Arlingtons died. Yeah, it's like a half year anniversary. Mm -hmm. And the climactic battle at Green Hollow, as established by James's journal entry in Chapter 40, took place on July 24th. So we've got a big gap to work with in terms of the amount of time that passes between the end of chapter 40 and everything that happens throughout chapters 41 and 42. Mm -hmm. The next time step we get after that is during the final chapter, which is where James and Abigail return to Clearwater slash New Athens in September of 1883. And the next time we hear Raven's voice is to mark the death of President Grant, itself a mere two days after his faithful article at the end of Arlington. Now, ostensibly, Raven was in transit this whole time. 
choosing to take, as he says, the long way back from Green Hollow. And this trip ostensibly took 101 days, July 25th-ish to November 3rd-ish. That means that in addition to the four books he wrote for Team Steam, more on that later, he was doing a lot of thinking and catch-up work on current events, both that happened while they were on their trek and in the aftermath of Green Hollow. The details he has access to, even from afar, speak to how good of a network of information he has, as well as how willing they are to go out of their way for him. And this leads me to another big question. Is Raven an authorial Gary Stew? Because he managed to gather research, write several news articles, and four entire books over the course of three months. We can all hope to be that, uh, that productive in that short a space of time. Yeah, when you lay it all out like that, yeah, it is an astonishing amount of work in a short space of time. I would refute your use of the term Gary Stew, because that feels like a loaded term to level as a character, which, frankly, I am confident neither you nor I believe for an instant. It indicates that Raven is devoid of personality and so excellent at his various strengths and skills that he borders on being flawless, which, come on, this is Raven. I am shit at being a shaman. Oh, I was told by my elders and betters not to pursue the role. I obviously wasn't necessarily meaning it in the derogatory sense. And definitely Raven doesn't qualify from the perspective of everyone thinking Raven is the bee's knees. Because the exact opposite is true. That doesn't change the fact that there might be a bit of wish fulfillment there. Combined with the idea that in his ending monologues, Raven is voicing a portion of Alex's own opinions formed from the last six years. That said, do listen to the original Steamheart interview when I re-release it in a week or so, as he mentions how his first book, The Bright Ones, had strong Gary Stu elements, and also a far different version of Raven in it. Alex has gone on the record of saying that there is something of himself in all of the characters that he sure. has written. And I absolutely believe there are parts of like Raven as a writer that like Alex feeds into that characterization, drawing from his own mannerisms and style and stuff like that. It's I am not going to say that they are like wholly comparable to one another. No. But there are moments where you hear Alex's voice and it's not just because he is voicing him. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there is a specific line that he said on the Discord at one point in how if he took the time to voice his opinion on every single major event, every single thought he ever had, it would be the only thing that he would ever do. And that the books of New Century are in some ways like his way of externalizing those thoughts through the voices of all of these other characters. Which honestly is a very common thing for creators of fiction to do. For both good and ill. Mm. There's an intriguing aspect to that in terms of it contains all of the positive thoughts he has and even some of the negative thoughts that he has in regards to life, the universe, and everything. The idea of Raven as a character that is 
trying to make coherent sense of the world, but speaking from a place of deep pain. There, there is a connection to Alex that is hard to ignore, and that, I guess think that's the only thing that I was trying to jokingly, fumblingly get at. <laughs> no, I am absolutely in agreement with you there. I basically what I was trying to do is get accuracy of terms, you mm-hmm. know, to draw from a lot of the feedback that you get in like academic writing is just sort of like making sure you're pinned down the terms and. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a more fruitful conversation, which, to be honest, we are already having, you have already Mm -hmm. elaborated on, is to determine whether this period of productivity, you know, stretches our limits of credulity or not, and what our answer to this question says about Raven, and also this period of New Century's development in World, and, you know, Alex as a writer. The books certainly seem like an astonishing accomplishment when framed like this. Hell. Even Alex, at the height of his output of New Century, four books in three months was not quite how Back in Time Plus Space, uh, Nightfall of the Wendigo, Panthersoul, and Stonespring Maidens panned out. It was not three months, it was longer than that. And uh, part of those were written during 2020 and put to one side when he couldn't continue. So, yeah. Sure. I think there's also a likelihood that much of those books, talking about Raven now and the in-universe versions of the four books that he produces of Phase 1, or at least Phase 1 as it existed at that, you know, the books that Raven wrote and presents at the end of this book. I think that a lot of it had likely been gestating and even had early work done on it during their time in Steamheart. Raven participated in much of the story, but we have to remember that there were long stretches of time when he would have likely done nothing but write or think deeply about writing. The interviews and notes that he made throughout the book of Steamheart make it apparent that this was something he had been planning long before the finale of Green Hollow. It was not something that he only decided to do in response to it. Still, even with that being said, it is a huge feat to accomplish. In re-listening to Toby's words here, I'm reminded that all the way back at the end of the April Ball episode, Raven said that he was cogitating on a book he was writing about, quote-unquote, the last days of mankind. On one level... One looks at those words right now and marvels that instead of that book, he instead novelized the exploits of Team Steam, his adopted family. And even if these stories are somehow detailing in any way the last days of mankind, he still framed them as ultimately stories of hope. Hope we wouldn't expect from the cynical Raven. And yet, at the same time, one recalls that, once upon a time, all four of these books were supposed to be one book, before Alex expanded it into four. It makes me wonder if this was therefore something left over from Alex's original design, and the tale of Steamheart was always going to be the book Raven was destined to write. Maybe Raven is a better shaman than he gives himself credit for. 
because above and beyond the spiritualism and the wisdom, shaman are storytellers. And that's exactly what Raven did. He told their story. Uh, by the way, please do feel free to interject because I know I went on a long yeah. thing here. No, it's okay. Um, I do want you to continue, but I do have a brief thought. Remember how we highlighted in the previous episode about um, whether or not Abigail talked with Raven about the events that transpired at Weirwood because Raven makes a point of asking about Lucy mm. and how a conversation might have been fueled by their mushroom drug trip. That feels like somewhere off screen, Abigail and probably James as well might have had private conversations about those early days, the, the, the first five chapters, and then the, the other four chapters that were inserted into the new version of Secret Rooms. Mm. That's when Raven learned about all of that stuff. And so therefore, we see a shade of that in that fateful conversation at the beginning of chapter 30. I mean, it's also even possible that the diary entries that James and Abigail wrote as part of Secret Rooms, those journals were still with them. That is a possibility. A yes, that is a possibility. It could be that they continued to keep those diary entries with them. I know that in theory, a lot of these diary entries are meant to be submitted to the RSA as a way of... right. A, a living memory like that was a key component mm -hmm. of stuff that was referenced and, and alluded to in cartographers and secret rooms and it's not exactly like they were photocopying these no no it's not but i wonder if james and abigail would have shared diary entries from that far back mm -hmm. or if mm -hmm. they really only existed in their own memories at that point I don't think that the actual answer is that important. No, that is actually like something we get to later. So like we can move past these like little, yeah, the minutiae of how these came to be. But to, to uh, get back to your original thoughts. Yeah. So we also do get to see a lot of the signs of the technology that is advancing, even as Team Steam were out on the road. James himself contemplates just how they're, whole journey throughout the book is put into perspective when this new flying machine was able to get them to Washington in a day. Mm. It, it It's almost even more deflating after how much was lost just by them being out on the road. And it's just sort of like, really? Okay, great. Like we, But what it feels like is sort of like that feeling of, I guess we had to travel there so we could fast travel to that point on the map i get it <laughs> it's literally like if we had giant eagles why didn't we just fly them to mount doom yeah but... this this is definitely that moment but i it <laughs> it's deeply frustrating for james and also for us mm -hmm. on his behalf but it kind of really helps cement the various emotions that he and we are meant to be feeling. I, I really like that development. In addition to that, the communication technology is demonstrating advances at various stops along Steamheart's journey, and with it, opportunity for information to spread more quickly is also just, like, on display throughout the book. Yeah, actually, thinking about it, it hadn't occurred to me that 
in addition to all of the telegraph messages that the team received that was relevant specifically to their ongoing journey in arc that mm. um, there might have been messages off screen for Raven as well that he didn't talk about receiving, but like, mm. you know, he got them and then was writing. He could have been writing some of this stuff during Steamheart's journey as opposed well, to. Yeah, exactly. Journey. Like in addition yeah. to the books, his whole job was to be the writer on this. Mm -hmm. Like he, he wasn't just doing this on his time off. This was the whole point. And like also not only that, but along his journey, he could have gone to places where even if there weren't messages for him, there could be people whose mm. whole sole job was to get messages and intelligence from different places and request information. And because of like who he is, you know, there's a possibility that he was able to not, you know, get it everywhere. But I think that's probably part of it is that both during the Steamheart expedition and after it by him taking the long road, he is able to get messages from a lot of different places who are all becoming more and more connected communication son <laughs> just mm -hmm. also i'm just thinking to myself raven is the chronicler for steamheart or even for just events in centrum but we're the chronicler for all of new century <laughs> suck it raven <laughs> <laughs> But beyond all of that, beyond all that, like, you know, the logistics of it, this is Raven's response to grief and trauma. And mm -hmm. we know that because after his wife died and what we learn about that, he wrote, he tells us that he wrote what he considers to be like some of his best or at least just such a prolific amount of writing during that time. It's what he does. It's how he copes in much the same way we were talking about this is something that alex does and this synchronicity between them a simple truth that alex and sharon mentioned during that first interview long ago this journey of ravens that he takes after the steamheart expedition is a process of meditation and also him going through his grief in a way that he is established to do especially when he's not channeled it into one of his other previously established coping mechanisms that we've seen him drawn to, which is his drinking. Oh, God, he if he's if he's not drinking anymore because James specifically told him not to, that actually informs on how he wrote four fucking books. Let's be clear. I don't think he's not drinking at all. I think, like, he's making steps towards, uh, like, cutting that back. But he's definitely channeling it into, you know, I think that we all have constructive coping responses and sort of self-destructive coping mm -hmm, responses. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we've seen both of those for Raven. We've seen each of them. And in the face of everything that happened in Steamheart, he takes it upon himself to write and he makes that his purpose. Travel is just the environment and the best means through which he can accomplish this so yeah raven writes an awful lot and yes there are logistical questions and theoretical explanations you can raise in response to that but i think as we've established through this conversation it's less interesting than considering what it says about him that this is what he chose to do after everything that happened in this book 
because this, the act of doing this and the product of him taking it upon himself to do this, shows a growth that we don't see him succumb to this vulnerability that we, this book has depicted him succumbing to multiple times, his drinking. It's also because it nevertheless shows just how much this sardonic asshole has come to care for this group that the grief it sent him into led to a period of writing that I can't help but compare to what we heard him go through after his wife passed away. He has managed to simultaneously tap into the wider feelings of this time by connecting with people over the longer road walked rather than the shorter one offered by people who fly above it all. Mm. And he has also, in doing this and choosing this, chosen to disconnect himself and disassociate himself from the RSA's official overview by declining this craft and its associations with white. Hmm. I feel like this is potentially something we'll get more into uh, in our wrap-up chapters, but in response to this well-thought-out piece of writing of yours, this was some really great stuff that you wrote in response to my outline, and the best stuff has not even popped up yet. Just very briefly, in terms of Alex's writing being how he brings order to his personal world, how he processes his pain and his grief, and Raven being an avatar of that aspect of him, it makes me think about Steamheart being a larger metaphor for the road taken since 2013, when he first put out the Cartographer's Handbook, and how that road changed as a result of, say, Trump winning the election and everything that was going on in the UK, how he wrote more books than he intended on the road to Steamheart, and how the story of Steamheart changed as a result of experiencing the real world up to that point. Because we're already going to talk about in the future how 2020 in particular, and we've already talked about it in interviews, how that, that year affected all of the books that came out after Steamheart. The connection between art and reality is wafer thin here. <laughs> New Century is a series that is reinventing itself constantly, and mm. that applies to it in multiple ways, because you have each book engaging with a different genre or really a collection a cocktail of genres so you never have this feeling that you are reading just the next one in a very sort of set series of genre stories you are always seeing that but in addition to that these books aren't going in a very set and concretely laid out path because alex uses these books for therapy mm -hmm. and we talk about these books as therapy. So it's, you know, we're all at a AAA meeting and it's just sort of like, hi, Alex. Like, we're, <laughs> we're just all here to engage in artistic expression together. And if it's not helping you give voice to what is preoccupying you, then what's the point? You have to let it be what it needs to be in that moment, not what you thought your life would be like five years ago. And that's kind of perfect to the theme of New Century that has always been, which is the idea of grief and how grief can be about so many different things and take the form of so many different ways, because it's not just about grieving lost ones. It's grieving 
the life that you thought you were going to lead not panning out that way. And mm-hmm. if the world confronts us with curveballs that constantly have us reevaluating how we see the world, then what is that but not grief for a particular version of the future that we hoped for? And that in response to that, we have to just keep on redefining and building a hope for the future that we work towards. The relentlessness of these devastating developments in the world is matched by, and I would say outdone by, the malleability of hope. And I can't think of a better note to end on, personally. As editor, I may always have the last word technically, but I can't outdo that little nugget of wisdom from my co-host. There's a reason he has the PhD. Part two of this recording will come soon, along with our final episode on Spider-Man Proving Ground. In addition, I'm releasing a revisit of the very first interview of Alex and Sharon back in 2019, with added bonus content reflecting on where Toby and I began before we went through the wind door. Until next time, let's bring back a song that we need now again in 2023. A song that was written in response to Bush and the Second Iraq War. This is the Black Eyed Peas asking, Where is the love?
on my shoulder. As I'm getting older, your people get older. Most of us only care about money making. Selfishness got us following the wrong direction. Wrong information always shown by the media. Negative images is the main criteria. Infecting the young minds faster than bacteria. Kids wanna act like what they see in the cinema. Yeah. Whatever happened to the values of humanity? Whatever happened to the fairness and equality? Instead of spreading love, we're spreading animosity. Lack of understanding leading us away from unity. That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling under. That's the reason why sometimes I'm feeling down. It's no wonder why sometimes I'm feeling under. Gotta keep my faith alive if love is found. Now ask yourself. One word, one word, we only got one word, one word, that's all we got, one word, one word, there's something's wrong with it, yeah. something's wrong with it, yeah. something's wrong with the good world, world, yeah, we only got one word.